Welcome to Afterlives of Ancient Egypt, in which we discuss ancient history and relevant current events. I'm Kara Cooney, and I love to take deep dives into history that are not always possible in academic formats. So let's get started. Okay. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us for our this is our September Q&A, and we're doing it as a live event as well. I hope everyone's doing well. Thanks for taking time out of your busy Saturday to stop by and hang out with us for a bit. So I have a bunch of questions from people who couldn't attend that I have written down. Um, but I want to open the floor first to you all. I had a question about there was a TV show on Netflix, I think it was, called Unknown that had two different excavations. One was looking for a lost pyramid and the other was found a scroll. I just mm -hmm. wondered what happened with that scroll because I thought it was so cool that the way they were able to actually unroll it. It's papyrus was Yuri. Yeah. So now that scroll, it's the longest papyrus they've found intact. And so it's actually unrolled and displayed in the Cairo Museum, the Egyptian Tahrir Museum. And it's, it takes up the whole room. It's this huge. I recently, someone took a picture of it. And it's massive. And I'm sure it'll go to the gym. Maybe it'll stay in the Cairo Museum. I'm not actually sure. But it's, it's the kind of piece that I can imagine would go to the Grand Egyptian Museum mm -hmm. as well. It, it's on display. Yeah. And it, yeah, it's great that it didn't fall to pieces because what we have other stories of papyri being found, like the Turin Cannon and stuff, where they were thrown onto a donkey, was found intact, and then... They put it on a donkey and the donkey waddled along and the pyrus just broke into pieces. And now we're left with tiny little scraps and it's really hard to make sense of it. And it's a very important piece. Yeah, one of the most important documents that we have. And it's in scrappy bits of paper. Really frustrating. So, I'll ask you yeah. a question back. Did you enjoy the show? I did. I was surprised. I was a little skeptical about how it would be because it was on Netflix or something, mm -hmm. I think. But I found it fascinating the way they went back and forth between the two different digs and the things they talked about. Yeah, I, I think it, that show got mo more praise out of other versions, at other ones, because it, one was, I think, very fronting of the Egyptians doing Egyptological work. And a lot of Egyptians were involved in the making of the, in the documentary as well. And so I think it was less sensationalized and stuff like that. Than other. That's what I thought. It mm -hmm. wasn't like reenactment kind of things. Mm -hmm. It was actually them doing things and talking to each other, which I like those kind of a whole lot better. More realistic. Yeah, for sure. Right, I'll go to a, another question. 88 is asking, mm -hmm. I know that Egyptian women had more rights than somewhere than other places in the world at the time. But I always wondered that when the Greeks came or when the Romans colonized the region, do you see changes in laws or socially or otherwise that women had a tougher time? The, you can write books and books on this topic. And people who study Egyptian history during these particular time periods of Greek occupation and Roman occupation would be better suited to answer these questions than I. Having said that, I think just looking at the Ptolemaic dynasty, those 300 years shows that family-based female power was essential to running the government. And that's something you don't see in the Greek mainland. It's to some extent, the Macedonian royal court, you do see that element of female power. Again, it's a family-based 
organized system of government, an authoritarian system of kingship government. I think your question is also asking on the household level, how do things parse out? And I think there's a number of different tacks one could take. And I don't want to give a blanket response because it's so big. What I will say is that in the Delta and the North, there's much more evidence for private ownership of property in terms of small land holdings than you saw earlier in Pharaonic time periods, certainly up to the, the end of the New Kingdom for time periods when we actually have a lot of documentation about land ownership and such. Land ownership is something I would really track when talking about female power, because the more land that's owned and that's then passed down in a lineage, the more patriarchal bodily control you might be able to impose or would want or need to impose, because then the woman's body needs to be commodified and marked and owned and ingress and egress documented to make sure that the child or children that the woman is bearing belong to the lineage. So you get more social controls around women, arguably during a Greek occupation, but particularly in areas where you see the, this competition among small landowners and professionals and more of an industrial or proto-industrial middle class arising. So you do see that, that kind of competition in small family-based circles. And when you see that, I would argue that women then need to be more commodified. And there's one really interesting element of Greek private property ownership in particular, which is intermarriage within the family, incestuous intermarriage within the family that becomes very common. You get even brother-sister marriages, you get cousin-cousin marriages, and I'm not talking second cousins, I mean first cousins, which helps to maintain power within a family with, embedded within a system of small landholding families who are in competition with one another. So instead of parceling out land, people are trying to keep it more within the family. And it's a really interesting thing that in Egypt as a whole, that you see the more incest there is in a particular time period, zeitgeist, the more female power there is. It's, it's if power, and I'm writing an article about this, which I can talk about more if you guys want, but I'm talking about body power and body control and how patriarchal forces are able to parasitically control a, a body with uterus and lactation devices and all these things. We might call it a female body. That's fine. But these masculine bodies are able to control female bodies. But women can negotiate power within that system of being thus bodily controlled by connecting their bodies incestuously in partnerships, whether they have choice in this or not, this is a, a, it's one negotiation with brothers or cousins such that they can negotiate more power. So there's so much that one can say about this massive question. I would love to oversee your dissertation on this kind of question. But again, I'm not, I don't read Demotic. So well, they probably wouldn't be <laughs> me who would do it. Maybe I could be there for the feminist or, or gender discussions, but the actual reading of the text, that would have to be somebody else jumping in there. And then one final thing, and Jordan, I'll let you jump in. But just note that the book that I wrote, When Women Ruled the World, you have all of this female power is nothing less than king, starting with Nefer Sobek at least. And we have Cleopatra and that mix as well. And the Ptolemaic queens are wrong. And Cleopatra is ruling alone as leader of state, arguably, though she's there 
accompanied by Roman warlords, by her child, by brothers before that. But the Egyptian geography and economic systems nonetheless seem to demand that when a family monarchy is running things rather than a military community practice, like a more 19th or 20th dynasty Ramesid feature, when it's really centralized within the family, female power for that elite educated woman is essential. And that doesn't seem to change. In fact, it would be the Ptolemies who are changed by Egypt, arguably, when they come in and then Egypt works upon them. And that's such an interesting thing when you're, I love to work with Michael Mann's sources of social power, ideological, economic, military, and political, and how those are embedded within political geographic economies, et cetera, et cetera, and how they work upon each other. You can have an ideological power embedded in Arabia that says that all grain growers are bad and alcohol that's fermented is bad and evil and not of God. And that ideology, which really is from a cultural economy without grain growing and with herding instead, when imported into Egypt, can actually push back against one of the key economic features of how you save your grain in the form of alcoholic beverages. And that right there is super interesting. So these things can work in multiple different ways. This is a really interesting question. And I would encourage you to research more on that. I, I think it's great. I totally agree with Kara about the Ptolemies being changed by Egypt. I actually was just tangentially related working on Kara's Women in Power class for our undergrads here. And I was re-listening to your lectures on Cleopatra, comparing Cleopatra and Hatshepsut, and just the different kind of how they came to power, how they used power, and the different power strategies that they had to work within. And it's a lot are the same, but there's still very drastic differences because of cultural differences. Off the top of my head, I can think of a still divorce and will documents, immediate pairs popping up within demonic circles. And so I think we still have divorce happening, which would have been anathema within a Greek, very classical Greek sense. And yeah, will documents of property ownership being transferred from women to children or how this works. I don't think the Ptolemies came in and changed anything. I think, in, as Kara was saying, it was more they adopted these strategies that were already in place. And we have to remember, too, that the Ptolemies were these super elites, that there was different social groups between the Egyptians, the Greeks, the Romans, any kind of hybridized cultures in between. Which were applied differently, probably to different groups of people. I do completely understand that I dodged this question. I completely dodged it because there's no way to say, yes, they lost power or they gained power. The Egyptian cultural economy is still going to be maintained. Having said that, I think it depends on whether or not the women in a community that we're talking about are working with a small landholding system in which I would argue they lose power overall and are more controlled overall, or whether they're working within a sharecropping system Mm -hmm. in which they don't own the land directly and are working under an institution. And and this might be even more upper Egyptian versus lower Egyptian or middle Egyptian, that there's geographic differences within Egypt where there's more colonization by Greek speaking people coming in. If you're working for a larger institution, then women may actually have more individual rights and power within that community. Uh So it's not there's no easy answer to this question. And I think it's, you know, it's really embedded within the different cultural economies and whether or not there's land ownership. That's where I would look. Agreed. Yeah, it's intersectional. Yeah, 
if you're having military men given land in the Fayum or something, that's going to be much different than land owned by Karnak or something down in the South. Yeah. Yeah. But good question. And let me also say that Egyptologists are so hyper positivist about female power right now in particular that they refuse to admit that females are females, that women are bodily controlled by their biological economy, by patriarchal power in any way, shape or form, and instead focus on the negotiated power within that patriarchy as a given for everyone. It drives me crazy. I find it regressive. I find it a willful ignoring of social realities. And I find it very threatening within a society that is currently in the United States trying to impose bodily control on women in half of the states in this union. So I I find it, yeah, I find it an interesting place to start. But I understand why feminism and feminist history is pushed against this and said, no, we can't focus on the body because by focusing on the body, you're insisting, this is what my article is about, You're insisting that this bodily control is inevitable and it's determined and there's nothing you can do to change it. Whereas if you understand the bodily control, in my opinion, it's the only way to create a corrective. So it's a materialist perspective. It's a new materialist perspective. Versus equality. Yeah. Yeah. So if women's bodies can and girls' bodies can bear children and be compelled through lactation and hormonal devices to do the caretaking, then I think it has to be discussed what that, how that body can be parasitically commodified by male bodies to do domestic labor for them, no matter what it is, we, what kind of power we can negotiate within that system. I'll push back hard against this. Where this um, related, but if anyone is on TikTok, there's this trend going around about girl dinner. I don't know if anyone's heard of these like girl dinner. And I was listening to a sociologist discuss actually what girl dinner means because it's I'll explain girl dinner but it's essentially a woman eating a random assortment of things because in most cases she's so busy taking care of the family or doing other things and that so she's just eating a random assortment of a great beer a piece of cheese and bottle and like some chips and they were talking about if girl dinner exists does a boy dinner exist and it's no because they were looking at once people pair up People start expecting, usually in this most cases, that in a heterosexual relationship, the woman starts cooking and feeding the kids and she has no time. So she's eating these weird random snacks everywhere. And that girl dinner shouldn't be something raised on a pedestal, but that it's actually a larger symptom of women in heterosexual relationships taking on more of the family home labor and not having as much time maybe to sit down and enjoy a meal or she's cooking for everyone else, but then she just eats an egg or something. Okay. Next question. Uh, yeah. So it was more of a discussion point based on the last episode that was published. Um, it reminded me of this exhibition at the Minneapolis Institute of Arts. There's a coffin and next to it, the Cardinal. I'm sorry if I'm butchering this word. Kathanarish in French. The, Beautiful. Uh, <laughs> essentially the mummy case that was inside the, the coffin. And it is sealed. And they used to display it with an x-ray of showing the remains inside. And they'd no longer display it with the x-ray because it takes away from regarding the mummy case as a work of art, which is the emphasis because it's in an art museum. There's always like the little moral dilemma that comes in. Do we open it? What about the person inside? 
What about, is there any inscriptions inside the mummy case that might be fun to, to learn about? So what are your thoughts about regarding this mummy case solely as a work of art? And does the fact that there is a mummified remain inside, does that affect kind of the judgment of how to interpret this piece? I know it's also very rare to find these mummy cases sealed at this point. So is there interesting value in leaving it sealed at this point? Great question. Yeah. Cartonages, any opening of a cartonage will be destructive. You, you just have to take that into account that any museum that owns a sealed cartonage that hasn't been ripped apart body from the plaster, papyrus, plaster, all of those other elements before by dealers, before it was sold, which is what most mummy portraits of this time period look like. Given that it's intact, I, I doubt that there would ever be any opening of it. And it would be compared to an, a quote unquote unwrapping, though really this was a cutting up and a separation, a Victorian unwrapping of body from the container around it. Taking a body out of a coffin, a wooden coffin is a very different thing than taking a body out of a cartonage. But if you look at something like Howard Carter's removal of Tutankhamun's body from the inner coffin, that was also, I think, a, a brutal Victorian unwrapping in a sense. He had to jackhammer the thing out and the body was broken up into multiple pieces w during that extraction. So if that body were found 100 years later now, I really doubt that archaeologists would remove that body from that matrix. It would remain. It would be within that matrix. And then we would be doing all kinds of x-ray analysis, CT scanning, other kinds of non-invasive technologies to try to look at what's inside of that material, which is really interesting. And you think about all of the jewelry that's in Tutankhamun's wrapping, would human beings be able to resist opening that, those wrappings up and to take out all of these different pieces of jewelry? I, I actually doubt it. And then it would be this surgical strike of how to remove these objects. But, and then Jordan, you can hit on this part of it and then we can talk about the body element next but the unwrapping is certainly where i would start yeah i'm thinking back to musea Gizio di torino and their work with con Merritt, and they're still wrapped and in their body containers and they were scanned and they have jewelry still on them and they 3d printed the jewelry so people can still get an idea and it, now it's touchable because it's 3d printed so it's not something fragile or anything like that so you can touch the gold of valor and the earrings and things like this so i think that's a cool way of virtually unwrapping i know a lot of people who are even who are uncomfortable with human remains being displayed at all also feel that even showing CT scans or x-rays are also without permission or invasive and shouldn't be shown either. So I don't know if that's maybe what the museum is responding to by not, by taking down the x-ray as trying to be more conscious of the fact that this person can't give permission. But it would be interesting if it's more because they want to focus on the art of the coffin and the cartonage and not so much deal with it might be just they don't want to deal with the fact that they have human remains and so it's easier for them just to be like not really touch it but i think it's a shame too not to take because when we're studying these pieces it's we're learning about the people in the ancient past and so i think it's a shame not to address the person what what do we know about them her life and all this kind of stuff and you don't need to show the x-ray to provide that you can do that in other ways 
Yeah. Our categorization between art and, yeah. and modified body is ridiculous. And it's a problem for Egyptian funerary materials because so many of these bodies were then wrested away from their containers and sent to anthropological museums where they have since been lost in many cases at other institutions, whereas the coffins have been retained and maintained as mm-hmm. these art objects when really they're body containers. That is what they are. So understanding that they're a body container, that there's a human body in there, it adds an element of grief, mourning, the human condition, the disposal of human remains, the maintenance of human remains that an art museum may not want to or to busy itself with because these objects are so messy and complicated. But it's it's where museums find themselves. Museums are problematic spaces. They're spaces that sterilize, that attempt to remove. Obviously, they've been removed from their cultural context, in this case, from a context of death and even from a context of the body on the inside. And then you try to clean away what other elements are and then put it into the category of art and really silo it up into some separate space. And you end up removing the entire complicated human condition of that object. And I don't know many art museums that are trying to recomplicate those human elements and reintroduce them back. And there's a lot of fear right now about displaying funerary objects, particularly funerary objects from Africa in a country still ruled by white supremacist cultural and social systems. And a place like Minneapolis, where we know this is Minneapolis, right? You're talking about Mm -hmm. where we know police brutality is has been well publicized. So then what do you do with this body of an African person? How do you display it? And I guarantee you, most of the people working in this museum over the last hundred years, if not all, are people associated with the white supremacy power base. And so how does one work with that? Except now by pretending it doesn't exist and not can not directly discussing the issue. Now, I don't know the curators at the Minneapolis Museum of Art, and I don't know how the piece is displayed, and I haven't seen it. So I don't want to criticize this too much. But what I've seen in museums around the United States and Europe is a willful refusal to deal with it, removal of objects from display. I get it. But then putting them in storage and not no further discussion of what to do mm-hmm. with such what, such people, objects, manipulated bodies, things, whatever we want to call them. And, and it's a problem. Museums are spaces of power. They're spaces that display, categorize, and organize power. And you have a board of governors that, that is elect part of that museum space. They're connected to the government of that city and that state. In the United States in particular, there's a patronage associated with it. There's gala dinners that are associated with it. These are not innocent and, and clean spaces. They're intimately associated with power. And as such, it, it makes it even more complicated. So, uh-huh. yeah, the museum so. world's got a problem for the next 100 years. It's going to be interesting to see how it sorts itself out. Yeah, I think, too, if they removed the x-ray because of they didn't want to display human remains, I feel like they should put up something that says, hey, where'd the x-ray go? And explain we're trying to be more conscious of these things and not display human remains, even images of them. Explain their rationale. Because otherwise it seems like they are just trying to pretend that they don't have a human remains and they're just like, yeah, look at the pretty painted cartonage and coffin and stuff like this. But And what does a museum say? Oh, we've kept it. We've kept it safe. We've preserved it. And without this institution, 
this element would not be preserved for your visual consumption. And so there is a superiority of how that's then presented to the public, but how we should then work through that is, I don't have answers for these things. And there's a whole lot of decorated and manipulated body containers and museums around the world, not just of Egyptian things, but all kinds, but especially Egyptian things. That's what the public loves, right? And they're everywhere. And how museums work with that, I don't think it's easily sorted. Thank you. Yeah. I think with the recent news coming out of the British Museum, there will be an even greater reckoning happening with these art museums, antiquities museums globally. Yeah, it's crazy. I know the British Museum, they have there are English laws or British laws on the books that say you cannot deaccession these objects and return them to the country of origin. It is illegal. But it's very interesting to see that if there are curators that are selling shit on eBay, eBay. or wherever, right? And that these things are showing up in the market that it was reported and the director and other curators didn't believe it. Okay, fine. But we in Los Angeles have seen the Getty Villa emptied out of objects that were purchased in the last 30, 40 years. And these kinds of things can happen at the venerable Met, institutions. The like, stuff yeah, yeah, constantly to be stuff back. <laughs> and this idea of keeping objects safe. I, as a historian, I really understand that preservation of something is precious, but how, at what cost, who are the agents that are a part of it? How is it communicated to the community? These things are tricky. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great question. And actually, on a related note, another question from a patron talking about Heraclides. So looking more, thinking about human remains, Nor88 asks about Heraclides' teeth and wondering if you could do strontium analysis and things like that, and wondering if the Getty had done anything, types of analyses on his teeth, just to answer the question that you and Amber were talking about of their ethnicity, their cultural background. I had a look and I couldn't see. I don't think they did any testing like this because it would have required them to like physically go in and remove a tooth destructively. I don't think any such testing was done on Heraclides in this manner. But yeah, these strontium, these new analyses that are popping up um, are great ways of giving you some more pieces of data, but they don't answer everything. You still don't know you can just tell where they grew up as a child um, based off. But I actually was reading, I'm reading a book about the Vikings right now for fun. And they were doing radiocarbon dating on Viking remains in England. And they were getting these like crazy dates and they were really confused about the dates. And they, it turned out that people who eat a lot of fish, because fish live in the ocean or a river, and carbon decays differently within water versus on land and that's so the fish eat are actually eating like older carbon so if you're eating a bunch of fish your carbon in your body is going to be older so when they carbon date you you'll be like 400 years older than what you actually are shut up it's remains half of the remains were like 400 years older and they were like this can't be right vikings weren't here then what is going on And it turns out they were all eating a bunch of fish. And so once they calibrated it to include the diet being more fish-based, it then was like perfectly dated. Everything was totally fine. But so just like crazy things like that. I was like, what? That's insane. My brain exploded. Anyway. Yeah. And since Dr. Yoon has told me I need to be eating fish all the time, I'm not. Yeah, you're going to have carbon. Yeah, let's carbon date me. I'm going to be from 1902 or something. Exactly. 
Or no, what did you say? 400 years old? There's 400 years difference. I get to be a Renaissance body. I love it. Yeah. So when they dig you up, they're going to be like, what's going on here? Okay. Brian asks in the chat, do you think Nefertiti and I were related? Oh, big question. Because of the knob that was found in her tomb and that I had a cartouche on it, I was always wondering how it got in there if it wasn't already in there. I don't even know how to answer this question because Nefertiti's parentage is just a great big black hole. And it doesn't seem that she's a sister of Akhenaten, though though interestingly, when Tutankhamun's genetic material showed that he was the product of incest. Oh, sorry, he's talking about Nefertari? Sorry, do you think Nefertari and I? Oh, no, it's got to be Nefertiti. You mean Nefertiti, right? Because we're talking about end of the 18th dynasty, Nefertiti and I. Because Nefertari would be way later than I. That would be wife of Ramses too. He's saying there was a knob found in her tomb that had eyes cartouche on it? In Nefertari's tomb? That I don't know. No, I have no idea. But but I'll just leave it with Nefertiti's um, origins being um, very murky indeed. Um, Oh, and Tutankhamun, if he's the product of incest, there's no evidence that Nefertiti was a sister of Akhenaten, none whatsoever. But it's the assumption given that genetic information. And I've published this in When Women Rule the World. It makes more sense to me, given that there's documentation for Akhenaten having married and elevated two of his daughters to great royal wife and that there were children from these unions, that Tutankhamun would be a product of a father-daughter sexual union rather than a brother-sister sexual union. Um, but Egyptologists don't seem to want to take it that far. I don't know if, if brother-sister incest is okay. I don't get why people are squeamish about father-daughter. It's how patriarchies work. So, yeah. I looked into the knob. And so well, yes. knob found in Nefertari's tomb with oh. eyes cartouche on it. Oh, I don't know the circumstances of that find in Valley of Queens mm-hmm. isn't established until the 19th dynasty. But we're talking, the Valley of the Queens also has processing areas at the end of the Bronze Age when they're clearing out these tools systematically mm-hmm. and re-commodifying everything. So I would argue that it's not a question of them being related but rather Nefertari's tomb perhaps being used as a processing center for Western Valley materials and I's tomb being in the Western Valley. Maybe that's what we're talking about. And yeah, so, so I would go with looted or opened. Yeah, all of these so. tombs were open. And so I would go with the Bronze Age recommodification, sort of stripping of other tombs and processing rather than any relations. So um, you know, people have hypothesized that it's in there because they were related, but like Nefertiti, Nefertari's parentage is also unclear. True. And you have to be like a great-granddaughter. But I'm thinking more along Kara's thought line that while they're clearing out these things, or even it was like a flash flood, things get washed into tombs all the time. If they were, Let me also say that I was not a popular dude in the Ramesid uh-huh. period. He is left out of Seti I's Abydos king list. He is not there. So this isn't a king... You could argue, oh, within family circles, people weren't as squeamish about showing association as what made it into a tomb. I don't see it. I don't see somebody commissioning an object to say, oh, I want to associate myself with this king who is explicitly associated with the heretical changes imposed by Akhenaten. There's a great differentiation being brought in by the Ramesid kings 
saying that we are unlike the 18th dynasty administration before us. We are a new and different 19th dynasty administration. They don't use these numbers, 18th or 19th, but they're very clearly demarcating themselves from what has come before. So I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical, but I don't know. I don't know enough about this. So Brian, if you can drop into the chat, the article or source that you've got this right. I'd be uh, interested to see what context it comes from in the tomb, if it was just in a fill layer or something like this. And so we'd have to look more into it. Okay, uh, so Far Pointer um, was provoked by a point that Brett Deveru on Twitter made, and I'll read that tweet in a second, um, where he as- asserts that archaeologists are not normally trained as historians, and while some archaeologists may have some expertise in history, it's not actually required and is uncommon. This, that seems provocative, and I don't think I agree, but I never finished my history degree, and I'm certainly not an archaeologist. I'd love to hear what actual Egyptologists think. And so the tweet is, Naturally, many archaeologists have a lot more range, especially on historical topics where the evidence is heavily reliant on archaeology, though the substitution of historian for archaeologist and vice versa is deeply imperfect as well. Yeah, I have have a whole lot of thoughts, but it's it's a big topic. And this individual is a PhD from UNC history and self-identifies as an ancient and military historian specializing in the Roman economy and military. So let's just keep it super practical for now. And let's say that you're on a dig as an archaeologist, you're pulling shit out of the ground and you find a whole bunch of different types of objects. You have differentiated types of objects from a whole range of different time periods. We're just going to scatter your attention into documenting, synthesizing, and processing these objects. And the range would be, you have to bring in a whole bunch of interdisciplinary experts. Somebody's going to work with the body. Somebody's going to work with the wood. Somebody's going to work with the carbon dating if you're able to do that, et cetera, et cetera. And so the archaeologists, it is demanded that they have more of an ADHD perspective, that you are a generalist in what you find and that you are a materialist in what you're working with. Now, that doesn't mean when you synthesize this material and you write it up, that you can't be like a Nadine Muller who talks about urbanism in ancient Egypt and is very broadly processing information from a variety of different sites, material information, et cetera, and is able to use that materialist information to tell a much broader story. But historians exist for a reason too. And historians are there to holistically bring in all different kinds of data. And that data can be socioeconomic texts and can be inscriptions of a more formal nature. It can be material information, it can be bodies, it can be technical information, it can be all kinds of things. And, and then you're, you're working through different processes imposed by each of those fields of study. So your historical theoretical training is going to be different from your archaeological theoretical training. Yes, there will always be overlap, particularly for Egyptology which is so heavily materially based. We have so many objects and so much stuff that we're dealing with, like literal stuff that you don't necessarily have if you're a classicist and you can pull your love ancient text from the wall and pretend that there is no physical manifestation of these things. You can do pure text research. You can also do that with Egyptology, but it's more difficult because of how new Egyptology is, because of how materialized the language itself is, though the script and the way that texts are presented 
to the public and worked with. So I'll just say that disciplinary boundaries are fuzzy. They're never going to be perfectly strict. Like I'm a social historian, but I am also one of the core faculty of the Coatsen Institute of Archaeology. Would I know how to set up a theodolite with a gun to my head? Hells no, because I'm not that kind of person, but I can do some hardcore object-based work and work with that materiality in a very careful, archaeologically oriented way. And then I'll say in each of these fields, there's all kinds of theoretical turns that have happened during my academic lifetime and that are happening now. So if you're just looking at archaeologists and you're like, okay, if you're reading all of your Binford of the 80s and 90s and you have your processual archaeology, that was all changed with Ian Otter and the post-processual turn thereafter. And and now we're in a, a different sort of archaeological mindset, arguably a new materialist mindset that's often at odds with the post-processual. And these words may seem like, oh my God, this is so big, but it's, and then the Marxist just keeps going throughout that. I love it, that they just sustain themselves. They're like, we're just going to continue to be Marxist archaeologists and screw you all throughout all of those changes. And that's just within the field of archaeology and historical discourse. You have similar sorts of turns, theoretical turns, what's fashionable, what's not. Article that I'm writing right now is all about gender history, feminist history, and how it has been deeply unfashionable to talk about the woman's body within a constructed binary as having power imposed on that body. Because by admitting that, then it becomes a, a, a determining factor. And so there is a willful move away from discussing that body power and body history in favor of looking at negotiated power. And the word patriarchy is something that's been discarded and discarded in print. And the last person who wrote it, I can't remember her name, who wrote about the term patriarchy and did a very in-depth analysis about how patriarchy could be broken down, removed bodily discussions from her work. We'll have to put that in the show notes or something. But patriarchy as a term, and the Barbie movie proves this, is coming back into fashion, one could argue, and there is more discussion thereof. So there's always going to be what is fashionable and what is not, which is why it drives me so crazy when people say to me, and me in particular, don't bring your modern politics into discussions of history. It should all be apolitical. And I say, you can pretend all you like that the era that you live in and the fashions of your time in thinking are not conditioning what you're writing. You can pretend all you like. I would rather in my own work be very overt about the fact that I am conditioned at working with a certain political zeitgeist so you can see it and I can see it and everyone can then come at me and discuss it. But to pretend, willfully pretend that it doesn't exist drives me crazy. So I ended on a rant, which is typical for me, and I'll let Jordan jump in there. But yeah, there's, I'm not going to try to say that one's got more breadth than the other, one's better than the other. We need both and, and everything in between. Yeah, I, t- I mean, I totally agree. I think just foundationally, it comes from educational backgrounds. But I think in a way, you almost get to the same place at the end, right? If you do a more anthropological archaeology route, you start probably more broadly, just learning the basics of theory and practice. And then... Once you would get to your PhD, you would continue doing a PhD in archaeology, but you specialize in a certain culture, time period, et cetera, material culture. And there you're focusing down and you would get, you would have to learn all the history and the context and all this kind of stuff. If you're doing a more historical type of way, you focus first on the culture 
and you get all that. And then once you're to your PhD, you would focus in onto a particular thing of that culture. So material culture, which again, maybe more aligns you with archaeology, text, which takes you maybe in a different direction or things like this. But ultimately, it's just different methods of looking at the same material in different ways. And I think the most um, fruitful endeavors or when people work together and combine work and research. So I think, I think historians might be better synthesizing a bunch of data and creating narratives that are more, um, digestible to everyone. Like reading an archaeological report can be very dense and very boring. They're not trying to tell you a nice story or maybe prove a point, right? They're like, these are my methods. Here's the information. Here's the results. Much more scientific. Um, but then what you do with those results, what that says, the bigger kind of questions you could ask for it, you could maybe see more in a historical realm, but you still have, you know, self-identify as archaeologists writing very thoughtful narrative books. A lot of this too is self-identification. We go through this with within Egyptology, right? Do you identify as an Egyptologist or an Egyptian archaeologist? And this is just differences in how you want to see yourself, what you want to put more emphasis on. If you have more archaeological training versus maybe more text-based training, you might go back and forth depending on what jobs you're applying to and how you want to depict yourself in certain situations. But yeah, I think most fruitfully you are a renaissance person and you have a little bit of you can work with different types of data and construct these narratives. That's the most fruitful way of looking at things. So I wouldn't say one has more breadth or ability over the other. I think it's just different kind of training backgrounds. Yeah. Good question, though. I think these are all important because with the attacks on the humanities and things, historians have less funding, perhaps, but maybe archaeology falls more into social sciences or the sciences in general. So it'll be interesting to see where that goes in the future. If there's different funding opportunities for things. I know here at UCLA, the Cochran has much more funding than the humanities field. So it's a different, much different situation. Marissa also asked Kara if you'd seen the Barbie movie and I said you didn't because... I haven't because I... When have you seen uh, a movie last? I don't know. When was the last <laughs> time I went to a theater? I suck. I suck. Hard. She's going to have to wait until it comes say. out and then I'm, I'm going to have to sit her down and be like, you're watching this. You'll love I it. I know. I know. It's horrible. I read a lot of articles about the Barbie yeah. movie and I have not gotten my act to the movie theater to watch the Barbie movie. I would love to. And I just every day, like this week, my son has three shows and I was at the Bourbon Room in Hollywood for his band Seaside Screens. And that. so now I'm like a groupie mom and that takes up all of my time. I got no time to see the Barbie movie and I have I'm to a, carry drum I'm kits. a soccer mom. You're a rock mom. I'm a rocker mom. Yeah. I carry drum kits around the city of Los Angeles and drive to Hollywood. I spent my whole life not going to Hollywood clubs. And mm. now here I am mm -hmm. every third night going to a goddamn Hollywood club. So, you know, scotch think, and soda. I think Seaside Frames is on Spotify, right? Yes, they are. Yeah. They have an album dropping soon and, and they have an Instagram page. So, so check yeah. them out. Yeah, my son's the drum. Seaside Screams. It's where it's at. Shout out. <laughs> yeah. So there aren't any other questions. Those are the questions that were posted. Does anyone have any last minute thoughts, questions, feels, suggestions for future episode topics? Anything they would like to share with us while we're all on here? When's the next book club episode? Where are you? Uh, the next Amelia Peabody? 
Yeah, that's on someone else. I won't point fingers. Oh, you mean me that I have because I haven't read it? Amber and I read those books so many times. For me to read it, you have to pester me and be like, Karen, you have to read it. Can you buy it for Kindle? I have it. I own it. I started it. I started it. And then I was like, I, but it's fine. It's fine. It's me. It's not her. Ultimately, Amber and I could just do that. But you could. Fun reading it with someone who hasn't read them before because then you're like, what's going on? And who's this character? And you don't know like the trajectory of things where I know where things are going. So. Yeah. Pass to her. I too was thinking about that because I've been wanting to do a full reread. I've been rereading the Vicky Bliss series. If you've also read those, I'm almost mm-hmm. done those again. But I'll pester you. I'll just text you every day. Does that's what Amber does? Your Substack is due, Carrie. Your Substack is due, and then that's I what write you do. Substack. You do. You, you guys just have to. Years ago, I felt bad me. for it, and now I don't feel bad anymore. Don't feel bad. <laughs> the, it is the way. And I'm like, oh, I really have to do this now. I know. Okay. I'll just text you Amelia Peabody every day. So yeah, check out, keep eye on the Substack. All the podcast stuff will now be on the Substack. We're joining forces, consolidating down. Um, and it, it's good too, because then we can add other notes and stuff just embedded within that and that post. Um, we're having a lot of guests come on in the future. So we're trying to coordinate a bunch of guest speakers coming on, Egyptologist. We moved the podcast to Substack and we're yeah, really the doing things there. I know a lot of you like verbal content. I always listen to podcasts while I'm doing something else. And I love podcasts for that reason. But sometimes putting things in the written in written form is useful as well. So we're I need to have the Substack will read it to you too now. So you if you oh, don't cool. like reading, Substack will read the post out loud to you. So you can listen to it as if it was a podcast. And all of our content is free. We are like public radio. We just ask for some people like your generous selves to pay, but it's it remains free. All of our content is available for free to everyone. So thank you for your support. It means a lot. Oh, yeah. Thank you all. Thank you to our listeners for your support and please subscribe. If you enjoyed the show, share it with all your friends and most importantly, leave us a five-star review. Send all those ancient world questions and topic suggestions for future episodes to ancientnow at substack.com. We actually do read them all. You can find info on all my books, articles, and upcoming lectures on my website. Just head to karakuniegyptologist.com. Amber puts all of that together. Oh my God, thank you, Amber. Check out our Substack Ancient Now at ancientnow.substack.com, where we share perspectives on all that history and archaeology news every week and continue the conversations that happen after the podcast mic is turned off. Support the show by becoming a paid subscriber at our Substack Ancient Now community. This keeps the show free for everyone, and paid status gives you access to our archives. Thank you to our current supporters. I'm at all the social medias. Look for at Kara Cooney. Thanks to the team at Patina Productions for this podcast, which I must point out is wholly separate from my academic work at UCLA. See you next time on Afterlives of Ancient Egypt. <laughs>